Well, good to be with you uh, this morning, though I uh, take it I do have more apologies to make to you than anybody else uh, during your whole vacancy uh, for being burdensome to you for so many times. Uh, And if you've been carefully watching the announcements, you'll see, oh no, he's back again next week on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, And he's not only back, but he had been hoping that last song would have been part of next Sunday. David, uh, I think David Ramsey will have to sort that one out. But a great song that does remind us that uh, during this Easter period, we are to people who are simply bowed down with the enormity of human sin and the enormity of Christ's penalty paid for us, but the victory, the triumph, the confidence that we have as God's people. But that's next Sunday. Uh, this morning we're on Palm Sunday, as we were reminded at the start. And I want to read Luke's account of it. We had Mark's account read, which is very helpful, because uh, I'll be referring to it. But let me turn you, if you have a Bible, to uh, Luke's account in Luke uh, chapter 19. And verses 28 to 48 uh, describe this entry of Jesus into uh, Jerusalem for us. Luke 19 at verse 28 reads, After Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. 
It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Simple question to ask you all this morning. How do you feel when you arrive home? Simple question, but if you were to give me answers publicly, which I'm not encouraging you to do, there's probably a wide range of ways you feel when you arrive home. You might feel anxious as you know the husband hasn't done the washing and the ironing and the cleaning and you have it all to do before the visitors arrive later in the evening. You might feel embarrassed. If you as a young person have to explain to your parents that you failed all your exams, again, you might feel guilty if you arrive home with five bags of uh, branded goods in the January sale that your husband hadn't given you permission to buy. A wide range of possible feelings entering your home. And hopefully sometimes you come home and you just feel relieved after all the pressures of the day to know this is the place where I'm loved and cared for. How did Jesus feel when he entered Jerusalem in the passage that we read together this morning? We often speak of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But there's no evidence in the scripture that I find that Jesus was excited or elated or triumphalistic as he entered the city that day. Indeed, the issues that Jesus focuses his mind on and our minds today led me to have that title, the poignant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. If you do remember back to my last visit, and I'm not expecting you to, but in February we had a look at that moment when Jesus began this long road to Jerusalem as he went through Samaria and the Samaritans refused him overnight accommodation. Puzzled probably by the way in which Jesus, who had said that God would neither have worship on this mountain or that mountain, but God was looking for people who would worship him in spirit and in truth and yet here was, here was Jesus going to Jerusalem for the Jewish festival of Passover in a Jewish temple following the Jewish ceremonies and that whole journey from that moment through to this one was a journey which for Jesus brought him into direct confrontation with one group of people after another I've never preached a little thing on Luke 13, 31, but it's an interesting time when the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. So here's the Pharisees who are normally enemy number one, actually saying, Jesus, you better keep clear of Jerusalem because Herod's going to top you. He replied, go tell that fox, 
I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. So let me come to Palm Sunday and read carefully each of the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We never find Jesus focusing upon the palm branches, although we do on our uh, overhead projectors, etc. We never hear Jesus then nor later in Scripture describe this as being a moment of triumph and victory. Rather, what Jesus does, he focuses his own mind and the hearts of those who are listening to him around on three areas of life that are very, very important to him and to them that they've totally misunderstood. And those are our three thoughts this morning. Misunderstood Messiah, a misunderstood temple, and then misunderstood worship. Each of them could be a sermon in itself, but I haven't been given three extra Sundays today, so just one with three thoughts. Misunderstood Messiah. I think sometimes in our evangelical circles, we tend to think that somehow Palm Sunday was a brilliant relief for Jesus after all this long journey of opposition and confrontation. At last, he gets the honor he deserves. At last, the crowds recognize him for who he is. And it's a gloriously bright moment for Jesus to enjoy before the week of suffering and passion and death that lay ahead of him. But in many ways, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, it is for more confrontation and confrontation on some of the most sensitive issues he could raise with those who are watching him and listening to him. He would challenge that popular thinking about Messiah, that popular thinking about the temple and popular attitude to worship that he'd find in his journey into the city. So when it comes to his messiahship, he comes neither proclaiming his messiahship nor denying it, but I want to suggest he comes interpreting it. Both the Jews and the Samaritans had distorted concepts of what the Messiah would be like. Their Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem on a war horse. Their Messiah would come with political and military clout to do what no other Jews have been able to do since the Romans had first marched into their uh, city and country. Zealots and Barabbas in our Easter story was one of them, had tried by political insurrection to deal with the Romans and get them to shift out of the country, but they had failed. And I think to many people watching Jesus that day, and indeed his whole process of journey towards Jerusalem, began to feel, well, Jesus is the one who can do it for us. Interesting here in Luke 19, verse 37, that the first response of the crowd to Jesus is, they began joyfully to praise God in loud voices 
for all the miracles they had seen. So standing in Jerusalem, they're fed up with the Roman occupation. They're waiting for the Messiah that they thought God was going to send, who come with military power to get rid of the Roman invasion. And here's Jesus coming, and they know he's the man with the power to do miracles like nobody else had done. Barabbas had done miracles. The other zealots didn't have the power to do miracles, but Jesus does. You can imagine the sort of expectation they had. It had been raised a bar higher two or three days previously when Jesus had arrived at Bethany and had raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jerusalem was still buzzing about that. He was someone who could subdue the powers of nature itself. He could speak and the wind and the waves would calm and be under his control. Jesus demonstrated throughout these three years of his life that God was on his side. He could call God the Father to operate and God the Father would operate. He could call God the Father to send down his power and his fire and God the Father would do it. He showed himself to be on the side of the needy and the poor and the oppressed. What a great potential military messiah he was. But he doesn't come riding on a war horse. The donkey ride in Jerusalem was probably seen by some being the same thing. Well, there's no war sitting in somebody's field, so next best thing, Jesus takes a donkey. And their cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven that we read in Mark 11. It probably indicates that they still saw, even though he's on the donkey, they still saw this as a kind of Messiah who's come to set people politically and nationally free from their occupiers. But theirs is a triumphalism in which Jesus did not share. Matthew, in his record in 21 verse 5, actually reminds the readers of what the donkey ride was all about, what it's saying about the true Messiah. See your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fool of a donkey. It had never even had the experience of someone riding on it in the past. There was no war horse. The true Messiah, as Jesus presents himself, neither needs a war horse nor a substitute war horse. He's humble. He's gentle. He's peaceful. He hadn't come to instigate some political reform in the country, nor to subdue military dictators, nor to create programs of social reconstruction. He did come to destroy Satan and his works. And his victory would be won on the cross. 
his triumph would be proclaimed by an empty tomb. That's next Sunday's message. But can you see how Jesus has turned the popular view of messiahship on its head? Jesus is not the political workhorse himself. Rather, he's come to bring peace through his death upon the cross at Calvary. By his sufferings, we are made whole. By his death, we are redeemed from captivity. And by his pains and his agonies, we're set free. It is a glorious message, but most of these folks hadn't got it. They had a misunderstood Messiah. That takes a second into a misunderstood temple. The expectation of the Jewish hierarchy was that their city and their temple would last forever. And God himself instructed that this temple be built. And God himself chosen Jerusalem as being the city where he would be found and where he would be worshipped. But Jesus knew that they were sadly and totally mistaken. In Mark's account of this uh, week that leads up to the crucifixion, in Mark 13, verse 1, there's a lovely little phrase where some of the disciples take Jesus aside outside the temple and say, Hey, Jesus, aren't these magnificent stones? Isn't this a, a brilliant building? And Jesus responds, not saying, Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's going to last forever. Ravi does exactly the opposite. He responds with a blunt statement that that temple building would soon be tumbled down and not one stone of it would be left upon another. Here in our reading in Luke, Jesus describes how he saw the future of the whole city, not just the temple itself, but actually the whole city. And what a poignant moment it is in verses 43 and 44 when he comes and weeps over the city, sheds heartfelt tears over it because they hadn't understood the coming of Messiah and they hadn't understood the way to real peace that God had come through Christ to bring. And his conclusion, verses 43 and 44, is that not just the holy temple, but the holy city would be left without one stone standing on another. And he doesn't make that as a smug piece of satisfied prediction. He says it with a broken heart. These folk have turned away from the one source of peace himself that stood for them. Far from Jesus being a Messiah who would protect the temple, Jesus was a Messiah who would replace the temple. His death on the cross would provide a remedy for sin and a reconciliation for sinners back into fellowship with God. 
glorious message and hope we never lose sight of that amongst our regular Easter celebrations. There would never again be a need for an altar. Christ was the altar. There would never again be a need for a sacrifice. Christ himself, the one sacrifice for sin forever. Never again a need for people to come into the outer courts and wash their hands before they went further. Our sins are washed away in the precious blood of Christ forever and forever. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So part of the tragedy about the temple that they hadn't got a hold of was that it had never been designed by God as a permanent place of sacrifice and worship, but rather as a forerunner of Christ himself. Remember how he said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days to be raised again, speaking about himself. The other tragedy of the temple, as far as Jesus was concerned, was not just its physical destruction, but here in Luke 19, verse 45, the Jewish abuse of the temple. The very place, he says, it was intended by God as a place of prayer for all the nations had instead become a place of cheating and scam. The non-Jewish world had been excluded. Interesting, if you go back into the early days of the temple first constructed, there was no outer court of the Gentiles. They could bring their sacrifices along with anybody else. It had been a later Jewish introduction that said, oh, no, we can't have the Gentiles coming in. Keep them outside the outer courts. And now, in Jesus' day, as he enters into Jerusalem and sees this temple, that outer court area that even the Jews had said the Gentiles could come into was chock-a-block full of the stalls and selling of, of animals at inflated prices for people coming into worship in Jerusalem. Utter, utter travesty. So that gospel that Jesus was coming to bring, we see that, as Paul describes, that middle wall of partition that had kept Jew and Gentile wrongly out of joint worship. That would be torn apart by the death of Christ on on the cross of Calvary. And the gospel would come equally to the whole world, Jew and Gentile. No prohibition based on color, on gender, on religious background, on race, on ancestry, on age, or anything else. And isn't that that wonderful message we bring to, to our world today? No matter who you are, where you're from, what status in society, however messed up your life, no matter what your guilt, no matter what your shame, no matter what people think about you, Christ has died so that you can find acceptance in him, life through him, and reconciliation to him. Here there was a major challenge to the Jewish world about their temple, but a major privilege announced to the whole world. 
misunderstood Messiah is challenged by Jesus. The misunderstood temple is challenged by Jesus. And the third issue is the misunderstood praise that rises in Jerusalem during that day of Christ's entry. Luke in uh, chapter 19, verses 39 and 40, tells us about the worship of some of the disciples as they burst into praise. Probably not the 12 disciples, but some of that bigger group of followers of Jesus that went with him from place to place. When you read in Matthew's account, in Matthew 21, verse 15, he gives a slightly broader view. It wasn't just some of the disciple followers of Jesus who burst into this song of praise. There were kiddies who were doing the same. When the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. The Pharisees were indignant. And so they come to Jesus and said, haven't you heard what's going on? Rebuke them, tell them off, keep them quiet. And the response Jesus gives is brilliant. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, o Lord, have called forth your praise. You can kind of feel for the religious teachers and leadership, the guardians of temple worship. If these kiddies are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, you've come to save us, to rescue us. Did those kiddies not realize how politically loaded that statement was? Jesus, keep them quiet. They, they don't know the political implications of what they're saying. Those kiddies wouldn't grasp the liturgical proprieties of temple worship. And there's supposed to be a whole process you go through before you start to read the Psalms and sing their message out. And these kiddies, they didn't understand that. Keep them quiet, Jesus. Jesus, these kiddies won't understand the theological content and implications of what they're saying. They may have heard the words by some of your disciples, they may have heard the words from their parents in the path, but they won't understand the profound theological content of what they're saying. Keep them quiet, Jesus. And it takes us back to where we were in February, doesn't it? Where Jesus had said to the Samaritan woman, the day is coming when neither on Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem will there be a limitation on worship. But God the Father is looking for a day when people will worship him in spirit and in truth, not worried about liturgy, not confined by location, but where their hearts erupt 
in praise to God. And Jesus saying basically, the one who put into the hearts of these kiddies to cry what they're crying, to say what they're saying, and sing what they're singing is God himself. And what an upturn on their views of worship that was. Maybe it's still a challenge to ourselves and our generation where we kind of put so much emphasis on content, on theological correctness, on all the rest of the stuff, which isn't unimportant. But we can lose that sense of effervescent joy erupting from hearts that recognize who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that's what worship's really about. It's not about which hymn book we use for that. We don't use any hymn books now, do we? We're past that. It doesn't matter what hymn book we use. It doesn't matter what words we use. So much as hearts are stirred to sing God's praise and hearts are erupting with thankfulness and gratitude to Jesus himself. And Jesus accepts in Jerusalem the praise of the kiddies and rejects the formalities that are dead and lifeless in the temple. How did Jesus enter Jerusalem? I find it hard to say he entered triumphantly. But I do think in his focuses that we've seen this morning, he entered poignantly recognizing the failure of so many people to understand the true Messiah, to accept the fate of the temple and the city, and to express true worship that was focused on himself. But in doing so, he presents himself to them and presents himself to us today as a genuine Messiah as the ultimate temple and as a central focus of all true worship. He is our cause of joy. He is a spur to our praise. He is a focus of our hope and our worship. May that be true for each of us throughout Holy Week throughout the Easter holiday. Jesus himself, Savior, Lord, and King. A word of prayer, and then we're going to sing together. Lord, we recognize a little bit of how profoundly significant to Jesus his entry to Jerusalem really was. We thank you for how he handled difficult situations, misunderstandings, confusion, ignorance, and did it gently, lowly, riding on the colt of a donkey, in peace, in love, with desire written in his tears to see a genuine response to himself. 
And Lord, this morning we would ask those who are here in this building or listening online without a genuine, personal love for Jesus in their hearts would feel his drawing power working in their minds and their hearts and their spirits, calling them to honor and to worship him with heart and mind and soul and strength. Lord, for us who have been Christians for a long while or short while, continue to work in us, we pray, to perfect your praise in our hearts and our lives, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.